WHMP. And good afternoon, and thank you for joining us on the Afternoon Buzz today. Um, this is October 25th, which uh, yesterday marked the eight-month anniversary uh, of Russian forces launching a multi-pronged invasion by land, by sea, by air, on the sovereign country of Ukraine. That invasion has caused widespread destruction by all reports we get, killing estimates of thousands of civilians, including many hundreds of children. We see on the evening news piles of debris and rubble lying where vibrant cities recently stood, uh, with virtually no part of the Ukraine untouched. In June, the World Health Organization reported uh, hundreds of attacks had already happened on healthcare facilities, on schools, and on personnel. And by August, seven million people are reported to have fled Ukraine, according to the WHO and the United Nations. And it's estimated that there's another seven million people that have been displaced, that are hungry and homeless within the Ukraine in an unrelenting search for food or heat or safety from the ongoing violence, the dropping of bombs from drones, the destruction that war wreaks on people. The United Nations has reported that the overall humanitarian disaster has worsened by the week in the last month with more than half of the people affected by the war trying to cross borders, looking for relief from this nightmare. This week, we've heard persistent Russian claims that Kyiv plans to detonate what's called a dirty bomb, and Ukraine has said that it's Moscow itself that's planning to use such a horrific weapon. And then, it, Ukraine claims, Moscow intends to conduct a false flag operation claiming that it was Ukraine that bombed its own, perhaps, power plant. A foreign minister, forgive me if I butcher this, Dmitro Kuleba told the news conference that experts from the United Nations nuclear watchdog would soon be arriving in Ukraine, would be welcomed in Ukraine, and would receive full access by Ukraine. And he has called on Moscow to demonstrate the same transparency as Ukraine, according to Reuters. And we have not heard, I don't believe, uh, from uh, Moscow in that regard. Uh, We are very fortunate today um, to have the professor of history and the history department chair, Sergei Glebov with us. Uh, Sergey is, he has a joint appointment in the history departments of both Smith and Amherst. He has written uh, extensively. He is an absolute scholar on Russia and I guess the USSR when it existed, the history of those. And I can't think of who else in this region could be better to talk to about what's happening in what I believe is the most important conflict happening right now on this planet Sergey, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, boss, for inviting me. So um, I have so many questions for you, but one I'd like to open with is, uh, I think, one that's evident to everyone, which is, why is Russia moving so aggressively against Ukraine, and in particular right now? Well, I think uh, to answer that question, we need to look at... um, how complicatedly um, the military operation was developing from the beginning and why today we see that um, on the ground the Russian army actually cannot achieve the objectives that they had. They cannot control those the territory of those regions that they annexed um, most recently, or at least proclaimed the annexation most recently, the four regions of um, eastern Ukraine. Um, the logistical supply of the army is, um, to say the least, insufficient. And so uh, domestically, Putin's regime has to present um, some kind of action, some kind of, if not victory, then at least action, um, to um, account for all the uh, uh, pressures that were put on on, uh, society domestically in terms of mobilization, in terms of economic disruption. And so the only path for them, it looks like right now, um, is to escalate the conflict. And since they cannot escalate the conflict um, through the ground forces in eastern Ukraine, what remains is sort of um, deploying massive power that Russia has in terms of uh, long-range missiles um, 
and essentially bombing Ukrainian infrastructure. This is what they've been doing in the last few days um, with with enormous damage. By some accounts, um, up to 30% of Ukrainian energy infrastructure has been damaged. Just be, um, Just before winter sets in. Exactly, exactly. And so I think part of the plan is to generate uh, massive disruption in, in, in Ukrainian social life um, and escalate the conflict on multiple levels. On the one hand, um, kind of raising the stakes for, for, West, for the West um, in terms of support for Ukraine and for, for Ukrainians um, uh, facing the winter um, to deal with, with the consequences of, of the infrastructure um, disintegration, possible disintegration. So far, they've been doing actually reasonably well bringing things back online, but uh, it's an enormous challenge. Enormous challenge, indeed. Uh, Sergey, well, why has the United States, well, I guess it's a, there's three alternatives here. Has the United States been engaged actively enough, in your opinion, in this conflict, or has it been engaged too much in this conflict, or is it just right, as, as Dan said? Well, it's a great question, and I'm not sure um, the administration would have um, a policy that would satisfy all, all, all the critics on, on each side of um, the divide. The real issue that's, that's facing the U.S. right now is how to support Ukraine sufficiently without provoking what might be a, a direct uh, conflict between NATO, um, the U.S. Uh, on the one side, and Russia on the other. Um, and we know that in the recent days, uh, there were phone calls between um, the defense ministers, um, and there were probably some communication, there was probably some communication regarding um, what are the what are the ways to manage exactly that 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 issue? Um, because um, the reality is, should the Russia escalate bombing of Ukraine, the U.S. will be under tremendous pressure to respond in some way. But what that way might be is um, is a big question because the administration cannot afford doing something that would make it a side in the conflict because that would mean um, an escalation between two nuclear powers. Right. And, of course, all of us, it's in the back of our minds. I was, I was talking with some friends here at the station this morning, and I was remembering uh, ducking under a desk when I was a child. I'm in my 70s, and I remember the conflict, uh, the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, here we are again. But it isn't just that that I keep reading about. It's also that if... That Russia's destabilizing activities become so great that it increases that refugee flow we've already seen into Eastern Europe, into NATO countries and, and European community countries that destabilize those countries because of the massive numbers. That, too, could cause a, a, a widespread conflict that I'm not quite sure what Estonia or Poland or any of those countries would do, but uh, is that of a concern to you? Uh, well, I'm not sure if um, that has not already happened. The numbers of refugees, Ukrainian refugees in um, Western, Eastern and Western Europe are enormous. Um, we, are, we are talking about millions of people. And so far, the major countries that absorbed um, those refugees are Poland and Germany in numerical terms. Um, and so far, they've been doing reasonably well. I don't think that... They're at a point where they're destabilized or, or, or um, you know, the refugee issue is, is the most pressing concern for them. Is it possible that one of these countries would do something independently, um, sort of outside of the framework of NATO and accelerate or escalate the conflict with, with Russia? I, I, I think that this chance is actually minimal. Um, and it's really... It's really um, essentially uh, in Moscow's hands right now to what extent they will escalate this conflict. Yeah, so you think it really is between NATO and the Russian Council more than, more than any individual country there. Um, we're going to take a break in two minutes, but before, while we're speaking of NATO, what do you think about the proposal of uh, NATO expansion, including bringing in Ukraine even as it's being... Uh, so invaded. 
Well, I don't think it's a realistic proposition, and I don't think um, NATO will ever reach consensus on admitting a country that is in the midst of a war. Um, uh, we Not just in the midst of a war, but in the midst of a war with a nuclear power. I think um, uh, you know this is, uh, for now, out of the question. Um, what will happen once the conflict is frozen, and at some point it will be either frozen or will end, in, in some other way, um, by Moscow, by Moscow forces withdrawing, hopefully um, because of the changes in political leadership or because of the pressures um, on Russia. Well, then that question will come back to the agenda. But right now, I don't think NATO membership is um, um, on the table, really. Got it. We um, we are going to take a break. We are speaking with historian and Russian scholar. Uh, Sergei Glebov, um, when we come back, uh, Sergei, I'm going to ask you um, a bad case scenario. What would a Russian victory over Ukraine look like and what would the consequences of that be? We're going to be back with Sergei Glebov right after these messages. Do stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. We speak not of the princes and prelates and periwig charioteers riding triumphantly laurel to lap the fat of the years. Rather, we speak of the maimed, of the halt, of the blind, in the rain and the cold. Of these shall my songs be fashioned and tales be told. And we do that every day at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. An ensemble of women, BIPOC, femme, dedicated to the transformative power of dance and social justice. The UMass Fine Arts Center presents the Ananya Dance Theater in Dostok, I Wish You Me. Dostok, I Wish You Me explores the cross-generational love that carries global communities through difficult migrations, reimagining the possibilities of freedom. Led by acclaimed dancer, choreographer, and educator Ananya Chatterjee, the Ananya Dance Theater is a dynamic ensemble. The Chicago Tribune says, more than most contemporary Indian dance choreographers, Chatterjee has completely transformed her genre. Get tickets at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Ananya Dance Theater. Dasta, I wish you me. Thursday, November 3rd, 7.30 p.m., Bowker Auditorium at UMass. At American National, what's important to you is important to us. Just like every horse is unique, so is our equine coverage. American National's equine owner's insurance is designed to address the inherent risks involved with owning horses. Flexible enough to provide property and liability coverage for operations of various sizes, yet can be tailored for your specific needs. We're right by your side. For more information, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. Co-ops build economic power. A co-op is a trusted and proven way to strengthen the local economy. There are no out-of-town owners. The members own it or the workers own it. October is co-op month. Check out our local co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, and farmer co-ops. Our Family Farms Milk. Small, local, family-run dairy farms that care about the health of their cows, your kids, and our community. Working together to bring you super fresh, 100% local milk. Reach for Our Family Farms Milk. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back with Smith's professor of history and Russian scholar, Sergei Glebov. And just before the break, um, I was asking you, Sergei, um, a question I don't like to entertain, but um, I guess has to be asked. What would a Russian victory over Ukraine look like? Well, uh, I'd like to think that we won't see um, a uh, Russian victory over Ukraine because, um, you know, Putin can pre present any uh, development as victory at the end of the day. It's a question of just fine-tuning the propaganda domestically. Um, I think what they're aiming for now is 
the recognition more or less of uh the uh, uh of of the fact of the annexation of Crimea and the four regions um of eastern Ukraine we also know that there are designs of the re- on the rest of eastern and southern Ukraine like the Odessa oblast in particular um but but i really don't think that at this point russian victory is actually feasible um the occupation of these territories is possible but it's not possible to integrate the population without resistance so it's going to be an ongoing conflict and even in the case of some sort of military russian victory but an interesting question would be to ask is 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 what would ukrainian victory look like that's my next question um, <laughs> uh how how would that look like if the ukrainian forces actually do um, uh, um, diminish Russian military presence on Ukrainian territory, would um, that development be acceptable to Moscow and to what extent it would raise the stakes and the conflict and escalate? And so far, I don't think that um, we see any um, kind of realization, um, at least among Moscow leadership, that this is um, among the stakeholders in Putin's regime, that this um, war is actually being lost um, right now, that they're that they're not winning that war, and that there are no practically no perspective perspective of of winning the war for them. Well, we're told by the Associated Press that the number of anti-tank weapons which Ukraine possesses uh, far exceeds the number of tanks and armored vehicles that Russia has. Uh, gathered around the borders or within uh, what we think of as Ukrainian territory. That's It's very, um, oh, I don't want to use the word comforting, nothing about this conflict is comforting, but it's somewhat reassuring to know that the armaments that Ukraine has at its disposal um, uh, appear to perhaps be enough. <laughs> appear to perhaps be well, enough. The question is whether the anti-tank uh, 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 guns can help rebuild 30% of Ukrainian energy infrastructure, mm. or um, any any other destruction of, of 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 the pillars of modern life that that Putin is still capable of inflicting on Ukraine many times over. I think there is a um, um, degree of, of of underestimation of what still remains uh, a kind of a space for Moscow to escalate this conflict and to inflict enormous damage. Um, and this is, um, this is a worrying, really worrying perspective for me. And how does this crisis play into Putin's internal politics in the long run? What do you think after, I mean, you've been studying uh, Russian and Soviet history, which has, uh, it, it's no stranger's turmoil internal turmoil. We uh, we just recently lost uh, Mikhail uh, Gorbachev, and we all were old enough to rem- remember that. Um, what do you think this is, how is this going to affect Putin in- internally? Well, I, I think t- I mentioned to you that um, the invasion itself uh, thrust the regime into a, a zone of tor- turbulence, which, which is unprecedented, right? Um, the extent of, of of the economic disruption due to sanctions, due to to uh, breakdown in the uh, supply chains, is enormous. Um, but also on September 21st, the mobilization that Putin announced, it, it actually for the first time brought the war home to uh, millions of, of Russian Russians, um, hundreds of thousands of families and millions of people. And we have no idea as yet how it will play out in domestic politics in terms of tacit support for the regime that existed um, in Russia sufficiently, um, as well as um, in terms of what forms of mobilization against Putin's regime and the war might still take place um, in, in the near future. We see, we see the first signs of, of um, uh, sort of... Um, friction in the elite with some members of Putin's establishment going after the regime, going after the leadership and criticizing it for being too soft, for not um, fighting the war kind of boldly enough. Um, Of course, on the other side of the spectrum, most of the liberal opposition has been wiped out. It's either jailed or exiled or or Mm. self-exiled and definitely silenced. 
Um, the outcomes of this are, are still yet to be seen. We, we have no idea how it will play out. Professor, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the changes happening uh, to the European Union and NATO, maybe specifically. You know, Germany has a new role in the world, and also they're not importing uh, nearly as much uh, oil and, and gas from Russia. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, it's a complicated story. One of the paradoxes of the current war is that the gas is still being pumped through the pump pipelines that go through Ukrainian and Belarusian territory to uh, Europe. And they're still purchasing this gas. Um, and the reality is that they probably cannot afford not to purchase it, um, although the volumes have gone down significantly. Um, so far, surprisingly, ironically, when, when the invasion started, everyone thought that the Russian economy will collapse and the Russian military will be victorious. But we are actually seeing something very different, um, which is the Russian military are not doing very well at all. But in economic terms, the country is actually functioning much better than um, anyone could have predicted uh, back in February or March. So we don't know... Um, um, if if what, what what will be the transformations of the energy regime um, um, on the Russian side? To what extent they will be able to redirect their exports to Asia? Um, and we do not know how Europe will deal um, with the prolonged energy crisis because some countries in Europe took an enormous hit, right. and. Um, some of European countries, like Bulgaria, for example, have more or less said that they want an exception to the sanctions regime and they want to continue importing gas um, and oil uh, mm. from Russia. So I think we are going to see a lot of divisions in Europe, especially as, summer, as, as winter um, approaches, especially as new governments uh, are formed in some important European countries. And it's still to be seen how how coordinated the effort uh, to wean off Europe of uh, oil and gas from Russia will be uh, in the coming months. I can't tell you, Sergey, how uh, grateful I am that you were able to join us today. We, um, we, you've really brought to life some of the questions that we have that uh, are engendered by the front pages and by the evening news. Um, it's a conflict that makes me heart sick, and um, as many Americans are really frightened uh, understandably so about how this could escalate and I would uh, I, I'm going to exploit your your kindness uh, in the future by asking you to uh, come again when uh, we start to uh, see new formations in the story that's happening uh, I feel so badly for the Ukrainians and I think most Americans do any last Thank word you. for Thank our listeners tragedy. go ahead interrupted you. It's an enormous human tragedy, obviously, um, um, of, 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 of unprecedented proportion in the 20th century, um, the 21st century Europe. Hmm. How right you are. Thank you. He is uh, Professor Sergei Glebov um, of Smith College and Amherst College. Thank you again for joining us. We're going to be right back with Playbill with Jackie Walsh. And I think today we ha are going to be looking at the half-life of Madame Marie We'll be right back with Jackie right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Senator Joe Comerford is endorsing Tara Jacobs of North Adams in her run for governor's council. Jacobs is running against a Republican from Palmer, John Comerford, who has no relation to the senator, to represent the 102 Western Massachusetts communities that make up the 8th governor's council district. I do believe she is the candidate for our district, and I do believe that John has some unfortunate takes on his role that will take us backward, not forward, and I believe Tara's going to take us forward. Jacob serves on the North Adams School Committee, is chair of the Library Board of Trustees, and holds a degree in business administration from New York University.
A decades-long journey came to an end on Sunday when Conway Town officials cut the ribbon on their new maintenance facility. Early planning for the building started in 2004, with discussions ramping up around four years ago. The new maintenance building at 26 Fournier Road features working bathrooms and both hot and cold water, which the former facility lacked. It also has a kitchen, office space, and wash bay capabilities. Pioneer Valley hospitals are seeing a spike in pediatric respiratory cases, including RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus. The Gazette reports between 140 to 170 children were seen daily at Bay State Children's Hospital in Springfield over the fall. Over the past two weeks, Cooley Dickinson in Northampton has diagnosed 14 positive RSV cases, 11 of which were in children and three in adults. RSV is common, usually causing a cold or cold-like symptoms, though it can be more serious for infants and older adults. A few breaks of sunshine early this afternoon, then clouds return and scattered showers a possibility late this afternoon, a high of 66 to 70. Scattered showers tonight, overnight lows in the 50, mostly cloudy scattered showers tomorrow, 64 to 68. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Today, I'm convening this conference because I believe we can use these advances to do even more to make America stronger and a healthier nation, to achieve ambitious goals and hunger in this country by the year 2030. This is a big deal. The President of the United States just announced to the world that ending hunger and promoting better nutrition in this country is a national priority. I think that's a good plan, and I think we can do it. Meanwhile, our neighbors have to eat today. The Food Bank of Western Mass is there for the over 100,000 neighbors who rely on emergency food each month. And if you want to help support the Food Bank of Western Mass, you can join the March for the Food Bank 13 Thanksgiving week. The federal government is making moves when it comes to fighting hunger, and the Food Bank itself is making moves. From Hatfield to Chicopee, you can move with us locally as we march from Springfield to Northampton on day one and Northampton to Greenfield on day two. March yourself, start a team, virtually march. Get involved, make some moves. Monty's March 13, making moves. Monday and Tuesday, November 21st and 22nd. Sign up now at montysmarch.com. For some kids, home isn't a safe place, and in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. Whatever the season, something fun is happening at the Hitchcock Center for the Environment. From home energy efficiency workshops to birding classes and nature walks, we have hands-on activities happening all year long. Whether you're 2 or 92, the Hitchcock Center has an opportunity for you to connect with our natural world. Come visit us at our new location, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And hello, it is uh, 4.30 on a Tuesday. It's time for Playbill with Jackie Walsh. Jackie, what do you have for us today? We have lots going on in the Valley still. It seems to be pretty much year-round these days. So um, let's see. We have Shakespeare and Company is still roaring, even though the summer is... Not quite long over, but starting to feel that way. Cadillac Crew, October 13th through 29th, is about uh, four female activists working in a Virginia civil rights office the day of an important Rosa Parks speech. That sounds really interesting. They're also doing Golden Leaf Ragtime Blues through October 30th. It's a shortish play. Uh, it takes place post-L.A. riots, and it explores the relationship between a black teenager and an aging Jewish vaudevillian through comedy and music. That sounds really intriguing to me. We also have uh, Silverthorn Theater at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield is doing The Taming, about a woman in Georgia who wants to become the next Miss America, 
we had a couple people from that play in last week talking. It's her little um, I want to end world hunger speech is about wanting to change the U.S. Constitution. Um, at Smith College, there's an interesting play called Our Dear Dead Drug Lord. It's this weekend. It's about Miami girls who summon the ghosts of Pablo Escobar. So that sounds super interesting. We also have, well, coming up on Saturday is the last um, show of Mother Tongue. It's a 90-minute show inspired by events and family stories from the Congo, Tanzania, Bhutan, Nepal, Holyoke, and Springfield. It's at 33 Holly Street. There's movement, music, movement, music dance, and Arabic, Swahili, Nepali, and English. And we have at the Northampton Center for the Arts, The Half-Life of Marie Curie, 33 Holly Street, November 3rd through 6th. And we're lucky today to have two people from that. We have Robert Freeman, the director. He's from Northampton. And we also have Sarah Howard Parker, who plays one of the two actresses in the play. The play is Thursday through Saturday, November 3rd through 5th, um, and Sunday, November 6th. Um, matinee. So how are you both doing? Great. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming. We're Rob. Doing great. Yes. Yes, Jackie. Sorry, Robert. Tell us a little bit about the play. Give us a little introduction. Well, uh, this is five years after Marie Curie's husband has died. She's in grief, uh, depression, and eventually she has an affair with a, another scientist, a professor that she and her husband Pierre knew, and what happens is this becomes public knowledge. And Marie Curie is attacked uh, viciously by the French press. Mobs of angry French men and women show up at her house. They scream, they break windows, they pound on doors. Her life has been turned upside down. And her good friend and British scientist, Hertha Ayrton, comes and says, you got to get out of here, and takes her back to England. So the two of them are on the English seacoast, and they talk about their lives as women working in the field of science in what might be called a man's world. They talk about their loves, their lives, their children, and that's what the play is about. Fantastic. And what, uh, what drew and you I, to I, this I, play? I, excuse me? What, what, uh, what, what appealed to you about this play? Um. I had done Lauren Gunderson's play Silent Sky a few years ago, and I like her writing, and I was, I was looking for something. And um, it turns up all the years I've been directing, for whatever reason, I'm not sure. Most of my plays, the main characters have been women. And uh, obviously, I've heard of Marie Curie, although I've met people in the Valley who have never heard of her. Um, that all the things we didn't know about great scientists, as both these women were, but their individual lives, their personalities, their identities, who they were as human beings going through crisis, and that always interests me. Plus, learning things, what these two women did to help the Allies in World War One, the inventions that, that, that they came up with, something I didn't know, so it always becomes an educational experience to me as well. Right. So, Sarah, fill us in a little bit on Marie Curie. I think most of us at least have a vague idea she was a scientist, and maybe it sort of ends there for people like me. But tell, yeah. tell me more about her. For me, too, to be honest. I mean, I knew her name, and I knew that she was important, but that was embarrassingly kind of all I knew. But mm -hmm. she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, and she was the only woman to win it twice. Um, and her discoveries, which we delve into in the play, um, you know, I think were prolific both in terms of the field of science and in stopping cancer, but also, as Robert alluded to, she really helped the Allied forces in World War One. and, I mean, that was a part of her story that I didn't know at all. Mm -hmm. I think for me the most interesting part of this has been humanizing her, um, you know, sort of looking up to her as as Marie Curie, like the the weight that name holds. But to to learn more about her story and her history and her love life and her struggles has been illuminating. Mm -hmm. So, do you play Marie or do you play the other character? 
No, I play Marie. Uh-huh. And she plays, and she plays, she plays Marie with a Polish accent. Wow! Can we yes. hear a line or two? <laughs> there was some discussion about that. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to give you a line if it's okay with Robert. Um, but there, I think for us, it has been a question of, you know, she's known for being French. People associate her with Pierre, associate her with living in Paris, but she was really a Polish woman. And so Robert was lucky enough to be in conversation with a playwright, um, Lauren Gunderson, and she said it's a French-Polish accent, which, of course, was like, what what does that sound like? So um, I tried my best to do a Polish accent, and then I do speak French at a few points in the play, and then any word that I can pronounce with a little bit of French, I've tried to do that as well. But it has been um, a real challenge uh, as an actor to try to figure out what this would sound like. I mean, it's also a blessing because we don't know exactly what she sounded like, so I think I have a little bit of liberty with that. Yeah. Um, the the film version of uh, part of her story with Rosamund Pike, Robert was just pointing out she's actually using a British accent there. So. Okay. So give us a sample. We are not, we are not doing that. Um, all right. I'll give you a little bit of an example. And then I'm on a boat from Calais to Dover. I have told them my name is Skłodowska. This is, in fact, my name. The one I was born with decades ago. Then you have to come to see the play if you want to hear very it. Very nice. So I'm very curious about the decision, Robert, to use accents because um, I've done theater where you know it takes place in the Soviet Union, and but the director thinks it's still it, not silly. But he doesn't want to use. Uh, he did not want to use accents because he feels when people talk to each other, they did not. Um, they were speaking Russian. They didn't hear an accent, and so therefore, the 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 thing to do is do it all with American accents. Um, but but I love going to theater and hearing accents. So so, what's your take on accents, Robert? Well, I learned a long time ago, as far as accents, if you don't if you can't do it well, don't do it at all. True. So when I was in contact with the playwright, she said that they had. The actress had done French-Polish. There was some discussion of that. I approached Sarah, and she was very willing to try. I have a very good friend who is Polish, and she came and listened and was very impressed by the accent that she heard. I think it adds a certain reality and credibility to the play and to the character. The other character, who I know you know, Louise Krieger, uh, she plays the British scientist and inventor Hertha Ayrton, she is doing a British accent because nice. she was, in fact, British. Nice. And I think to add, um, I, I completely get what you're saying um, in terms of not using accents in other contexts, but I think specifically in this play, they would have been speaking English, and uh, Hertha is English, and so she has a British accent, and Marie would have been speaking accented English and a little bit of French. Right. So we are trying as historically accurate as we can and entertain you. I, I loved your accent, uh, Sarah. I, I think if it, the French-Polish accent, I have, I know the name of it. It's Polish. How's that? Ooh. It's a Polish accent. Okay. I love that. I'm going to steal that every day. <laughs> so we, have, we, we, have, we have two more minutes before we take a break, Jackie. Just uh, wanted to tell you that. So we are talking to um, director Robert Freeman, actress Sarah Howard Parker, about the Half-Life of Marie Curry, which is coming up Thursday through Saturday, November 3rd through 5th at the Northampton Center for the Arts. The play is by, it's Half-Life of Marie Curry. It's by Lauren Gunderson, who happens to be the playwright of The Taming, which is happening at Silverthorne almost as we speak, I think last weekend and this weekend. She apparently is America's most produced living playwright, if you can believe Wikipedia, since 2016. So, when we come back from our break, I'm going to ask Robert a little bit about Lauren Gunderson, who is very much um, hot to trot playwright right now. I'm loving this conversation. I remember that movie, which I think was made in his 30s or 40s, and I remember when I was a kid, and I was fascinated with the life of Madame Marie Curie. We'll be right back with Robert Freeman and with Sarah Howard Parker right after these messages. 
This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. But it wouldn't be nothing, nothing without a woman or a girl. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. If you are on the Eversource Reduced Electricity Rate, whether you're on it now or you're eligible, you can tap into Co-op Power's solar arrays and lower your electric bill. A new energy justice initiative allows 120 low-income families to go solar, save money, and become owner members of Co-op Power. Join Co-op Power's 1,200 owner members building community-owned energy. For details, go to the Co-op Power website, coppower.coop. Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, workers co-ops, energy co-ops, farmer co-ops. Go co-op and build economic power right here in your community. October is co-op month. When you bank with UMass 5 College Credit Union, you can expect to save money and be rewarded. UMass 5 is a financial cooperative. We work for you. Our mission is to make a positive difference in your financial life. Join UMass 5. Go to umass5.coop. Just as I was starting my medical training, I came down with an autoimmune disease that led to cancer. I needed a liver transplant. Fortunately, I got one from someone who registered as a donor. As a physician, I understand the barriers to organ donation. Some people think their organs are too old or just don't want to think about dying. But one organ donor can save up to eight lives. People who register as donors are heroes. And I'm here thanks to my hero. Be a hero. Register at registerme.org. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has filed a lawsuit against Alphabet, the parent company of Google, alleging the tech giant is capturing and using consumers' biometric data without consent, a violation of the law. Google disputes the claim and says it can prove it in court. Medicare recipients are now in the midst of open enrollment when they can make changes to their plans. It can sometimes be a confusing process, and scammers are taking full advantage of it. Some scammers claim to be Medicare representatives, but are actually seeking victims' personal information. Wall Street investors may be suffering, but people with savings accounts sure aren't. After two decades of earning almost no interest on their money, savers are now finding the highest interest rates in years. Most U.S. Treasury bonds are paying more than 4%, with the two-year bond paying the highest. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back. Jackie, you, you were talking about the playwright just before we broke. Right. So we're talking to Robert Freeman, the director of The Half-Life of Marie Curie, which will be at the Northampton Center for the Arts, not this weekend, but next weekend. And hit the playwright for this play is Lauren Gunderson, who is apparently um, one of the pr most prolific and most often produced playwrights in the country right now. Um, and um, I noticed that another um, play in the area is being produced, The Taming, also by her. So I, I thought maybe, Robert, you could tell us a little bit about Lauren and uh, talk about her plays. And it sounds like you've been in contact with her. On and off. She's nice enough. She's a busy woman. I'll let Sarah address that in a second. But uh, Lauren lives in San Francisco. Her husband is a scientist of some uh, repute, and a lot of what she's done has been about women in science. It wasn't just Silent Sky. There have been some others, but she's also, uh, well, I'll let Sarah tell you what uh, Lauren sure. Benson's been up to. Um, so she actually has written the, um, the book for the new musical, The Time Traveler's Wife, which ah. is 
premiere in the UK and is going to move to the West End. Um, But it's got music and lyrics by Joss Stone and Dave Stewart, who is from the Arrhythmics, of course. So I think that was probably a really exciting project. So I knew this and then I was pleasantly surprised that she was responding to Robert's emails while she was in the UK and the musical is premiering. It's kind of amazing. She's so on top of things. Nice. Producer, director, Robert Friedman, I, uh, in, our, in the first half of our program, I was talking about um, the uh, horrific invasion by Russia of the Ukraine. Yesterday was the eight-month anniversary since uh, Russia launched that uh, unfortunate misadventure, uh, or criminal adventure, actually. And uh, I understand that you actually have been in communications with someone in the Ukraine. Could you tell us about that? Yes, it's a young lady who's also an artist, among other things. She lives in Kiev, and uh, I get emails from her quite often, and I hear these terrible stories. And she, one thing she always, she thanks America all the time. She thanks Americans for the support, um, and she really does, how much it means to her. And um, um, I hear these, you know, terrible stories, but she's, she volunteers, she's, done her artwork to raise money for the Ukrainian army. Um, I don't know if I'll ever meet her, but we've been dialoguing for quite a while. And so when I let her know that I had, I told Sarah about what, uh, uh, her name is Vlada, what she's gone through with the silent crying. And Vlada wrote me back and she said that meant a lot to her that we were not only taking from her, but letting the country and an audience know what's happening in Ukraine. What is silent crying? What is Um, that? I can have my actors sitting next to me do that, but there are no tears. There's no voice. Nothing comes out, but she's striking a pose that one might strike if they were crying, but she's unable to literally make any audible sounds because of the terror or the anxiety that's in her. And that's what this young lady described to me. Um, and it, w- it was sort of, um, it was fitting because there's this moment in the play where Marie gets some very bad news. And we had tried to do it a couple of different ways. You know, my instinct was to do it really big and loud. And then Robert was like, I just, I don't know, I, I think it would be more powerful if it was quiet. And so we'd gone away from it for a couple of days and we came back together and as we were coming into rehearsal, Robert told me about this letter that he'd received from this woman in the Ukraine that was describing how she was um, running and hiding and lost her shoes as their city was being bombed. And she hid under a bridge and she was so traumatized that she couldn't make any noise. And people were coming over to her asking if she was OK because she was silently crying. And it was so moving to think about that moment and also how the feeling that we were trying to portray had been happening, you know, across the world to this woman that Robert knows and that we were able to extrapolate that and use it in our production. I mean, it was how, really... P- how powerful is that, that, that uh, you were able to inhabit your character better because of the real-life trauma of someone else in Ukraine? It really, that's very moving. And, and that moment must be very powerful in the half-life of Marie. Right, right, right. So, Robert, you've done some really incredibly moving plays, and I've been lucky to work on a couple of them with you, including Radium Girls, which was about women who were painting uh, glowing the faces. I loved Radium Girls. Of watch faces and had to sort of wet the paintbrush, and so it was radioactive and they got horrible cancers. And A Soldier's Heart about a soldier, a female soldier with PTSD, which actually I don't think I understood PTSD until I worked on that play with you. You also did a play about children, I think, being moved out of uh, dangerous German-held areas. What was that called again? We did the music lesson by Tammy Ryan, who wrote Soldier's Heart. Heart. Music lesson was about a family uh, who left... um, the adults were in Sarajevo as music teachers, and they moved to Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, and they don't, the, the female, the, pianist, the piano teacher, has been traumatized by the war, 
and she doesn't want to teach students again because she lost some of the students in Sarajevo during a mortar attack. But they have to earn money and make a living, and two American kids become their students. And, and, right. and that's the story of that. Right. Wow, Robert Friedman, what attracts you to comedies like this? <laughs> well, um, I do know that when we do this play, I, I joke about all the wasted hours of my life in, in movie theaters and watching TV screens. I think you know, because I know you've all, you're also an actor, that you've you got to try to find humor in everything you do. So trust me, there is humor in this play, and we do our best to bring it out. Yes, I would like to say, you know, that is one of the, the ways that we deal with tragedy and we deal with grief, both in life and on the stage as well, is finding the humor um, in every situation. And I think that audiences will be surprised that there is humor and, and laughter and very funny moments in the play as well. Um, so it's not just sadness and sorrow and drama. I do think there's a little bit of something for everyone, or that is our hope. That is what we intend to convey. Sounds fantastic. So you're a week out. I'm waving the magic wand so that this thing called COVID has no impact on your rehearsals or your, oh, your but, shows. Can, can, can I make a statement on that? A Please. quick we're one. Doing this, we have about 30 doing, seconds. We're doing this at the Center for the Arts. They do not have a COVID policy. But for our play, uh, we are strongly encouraging people who are attending to wear a mask. It is not required, but we strongly encourage it. And I am providing masks uh, at the show. So if people don't have one and they want to wear one, they will be able to have one. And you can get tickets at the Northampton for the Center for the Arts website, which is nohoarts.org. Excellent. So we've been talking to Robert Freeman, the director of The Half-Life of Marie Curry, Sarah Howard Parker, who plays Marie Curry, which is going up Thursday through Saturday, November 3rd through 5th at the Northampton Center for the Arts. And in the 35 seconds we have left, what what last words would you like, either one of you, um, to leave listeners with about why this play is something worth their while? Well, um, learning about these women in science, um, especially one of them, Hertha Ayrton, that most people have never heard of, but the contributions that women have made in all fields, of, of course, that many have never received credit. But lastly, Hertha Ayrton was a major suffragette in England, in London. She went to prison. Women were beaten by the police. Uh, they were on starvation diets in prison, all to get women the vote in, uh, in England. And uh, just coincidentally, about two days after we closed the play in Northampton, is Election Day in across the country, and the big discussion has been the women's vote this time around. And by the way, the day after we close, the 7th of November, is in fact Marie Curie's birthday. Oh, I love all of that. That is so terrific. The name of the play, The Half-Life of Marie Curie at the Northampton Center for the Arts. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. You couldn't tell There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connections Breast Cancer Support Group, we can Live laugh or cry. And talk with for our Northampton in the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's